We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Andrei Soldatov is a Russian investigative journalist and the co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian intelligence services. He's been covering security services and intelligence since 1999. In 2012, Agentura.ru, Privacy International and Citizen Lab launched a joint project on Russia's surveillance state, which investigates surveillance practices in Russia and the export and use of surveillance technologies. Andre is one of Russia's most knowledgeable experts on cybersecurity and what the Russian state actually does. Now living in London, which is, I guess, a tribute to how effective he was. With that, let's go to Andre. How are things? Well, we just got our website blocked yesterday, so things are developing really fast. And uh, well, given what is going on in Ukraine, well, every second family of the Russians, uh, they have some relatives in Ukraine, including my family. And my family, I have, I have my relatives in, uh, in the region of Zaporozhye, which is <laughs> yeah. the place where you had all these problems with, uh, with a nuclear plant. And um, yeah. The, hor- the most horrible question these days is uh, if you have so many relatives in Ukraine, how, how would it come that you have 70% of people supporting this war? And I don't have an answer. Yeah, I'm always a little suspicious of statistics, but you never know. Yeah. So any, any surprises so far and now the, the conflict has been going? Well, many surprises. Uh, we have, I mean, this war is so different from what we had with, with Putin's wars before. Let's start with the chain of command. And in every Putin's war before, starting with the Second Chechen War and uh, in Georgia and in Syria, uh, we had a thing, it's, in Russian it's OGV, in English it's a joint group of forces. Mm-hmm. And we usually had a guy, a commander of this group, and his name was publicly known. It was public knowledge. These days, we do not have such a guy. We do not know who is ultimately in charge of, of the situation on the battlefield. All we have, we have some people in Moscow, the chief of the general staff, minister of defense, and uh, a spokesperson of the minister of defense. That's about it, which I think adds to confusion on the battlefield. What I also do not understand is why, for God's sake, uh, Putin decided to use the National Guard mm. uh, in this war. These people are not fit for real battle. Well, they are mostly to beat protesters on the streets, people like me, <laughs> journalists and activists, but not to engage in a real battle with, uh, with the real army. And now we, we know that they, they suffer horrible casualties. 
the response to that is absolutely absolutely ludicrous. Yesterday, uh, the National Guard asked Putin to give 40 soldiers government awards for this war, which we cannot call a war because it's prohibited. So it's really weird. What are, what are you hearing from people you know still in Russia? How are they uh, responding to all this? Well, psychologically, it's difficult because people started understanding that the economic sanctions are actually really, really hard. And it's not only about the governments. It's also about corporations uh, pulling out of the country. Mm. Everybody understands that probably you can get the governments to maybe to change their policies at some moment. Maybe with the war finished and Putin's gone, but how you can get the companies mm. get back and how long it could take, nobody knows. The financial sector is, these people are really depressed because they, like, they spent 30 years building up a very good banking system in the country. I mean, it was really good and now it's completely destroyed. Nothing actually works. Uh, there are problems with uh, credit cards, with transfers, with everything. And uh, import substitution doesn't work properly. The Russian system of um, bank transfers, MIR, uh, it exists. But the problem is that probably it was about millions of people, but not about the entire population of the country. The scale of the challenge is just too much for them. And to uh, upscale this system, you need technical capabilities. You need to buy more computers. And now this is impossible. And Russian companies, tech companies, they are getting really desperate where to get the uh, computers. Now they are trying to get some stuff from countries like Armenia or Kazakhstan, mm. uh, trying to find a way, bypassing the sanctions. But everybody understands that it couldn't, last for long and what you're going to do in three months time six months time it's a big question for everybody you don't think the chinese can uh, backfill enough either finance on the finance side or on the tech side well uh during the first week lots of people moved to the union bank system well which is a chinese system but it doesn't work properly i mean it's uh, you can use it only in China and in Russia, in some Central Asian countries, but not in Europe. Mm. Uh, so it's one thing. The other problem is that in terms of technologies, China could not uh, substitute for what is lost already. Microchips, a big problem. Big uh, data management systems, a huge problem. China cannot give it to, to the Russians. So there are gaps and nobody knows how to fill these gaps. Are people in Russia that you know, or perhaps in the government, nervous about a growing dependency on China? And that's something I saw at the UN is the shift in power between Russia as sort of the leader and China as the follower. And that's definitely not the case anymore. And is there nervousness about that? Yes, that, that is true. And uh, people are getting nervous uh, even within the security services. Hmm. The FSB 
been very reluctant to let the Chinese into the Russian communications. And now they do not have any choice. Mm. We are not happy with, uh, about it. It's hard to see how you, having painted yourself into this corner, how Russia gets out of it. Yes, it's a big question. Uh, well, it's also about a bad, really bad timing. Russia started this huge national program of input substitution seven, eight years ago. And there were some successes mm. uh, and they substituted some things, but not everything. And uh, even the government plan was to, even the government wanted to have two more years, probably to uh, 2024, 2025. Mm. So they got into this situation knowing in advance they, they are not ready. And now we, I, I'm talking to my sources and uh, all of them, they tell me that this decision to invade actually took them by surprise and uh, the financial block was not briefed. Lots of people in the, in the security services were not briefed about the extent of what Putin wanted to do. And it begs the question of how many people actually were in the know. And it looks like it was like maybe four, three people who actually knew what is coming. So which agency has the lead on this? Who is actually, from your initial remarks, it sounded like... Uh it might be Putin who's actually doing the military planning, which is always a mistake. Is it Kremlin? Is it FSB? Is it which service? Is it the Ministry of Defense? Who has the lead on this stuff? Well, it looks like the Minister of Defense has a lead. And uh, it was about Sergei Shoigu uh, personally. He, as we all know, uh, personally, he is extremely loyal to Putin. Putin trusts him. Uh, they spend time together. But Shoigu doesn't have any military training or education or experience. His only military experience is uh, the operation in Syria. And again, he was just a minister. He was not a commander on the battlefield. For that, he had this uh, joint group of forces. And it looks like either we do not have this group now, or maybe we have several of them, mm. but obviously we do not have a commander who, was, who is ultimately in charge. Well, with the intelligence agencies, to be honest, it's a mo it is the strangest war ever. Because this war started with Putin humiliating uh, the chief of his foreign intelligence agency, SVR, Narishkin. Uh, who was publicly humiliated at this now infamous meeting of the Security Council. Two weeks later, we got two top generals of the FSB's foreign intelligence branch placed under house arrest. Three weeks later, we got uh, deputy head of the National Guard being forced into retirement. And he is also not just some soldier. He previously uh, was with... Um, with the personal security detail of Putin, mm. with the FSO, the Federal Protective Service. So we have Putin attacking, targeting three agencies in a row in three weeks. That struck me as a 
very surprising. Why, why do you think he did that? Why did he do the public humiliation? Well, I think partly it's because of uh, what we started seeing probably in 2016, 2017. Uh, back then, Putin changed dramatically his attitude towards the security services. Uh, he started selective repressions against his elites, and the FSB was chosen as a main instrument. But at the same time, we got several people inside of the FSB targeted by these repressions, and we got several officers of the FSB sent to jail. So it looks like Putin decided at some point that the best tool to keep everything under control is to send people to jail. And uh, of course, it, it doesn't help. I mean, you cannot use repressions to fix your intelligence problem. <laughs> I, I feel like I understand a little of what's going on because uh, you might remember there was a senior U.S. official who said 19 years ago that when we arrived in Baghdad, it would be like Paris in 1944. <laughs> so we would call that an intelligence failure. And it appears that either he was misinformed or he didn't want to believe, but why, why would, would you call this an intelligence failure on the part of uh, the preparations? I mean, did Putin really believe people were going to welcome with open arms that he was a liberator? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the biggest problem here because it's not only about bad intelligence and uh, the security services being lazy or incompetent. There are still people there who are quite competent and who understand what is going on. The problem is with the leader. Putin has his own strong opinions about Ukraine. Mm. And he has had them, I mean, his opinions for years. We all know that he is writing articles about history of Ukraine. Uh, he doesn't believe it's a real country. Uh, he doesn't believe that there is a functional state there. So he developed this big idea that once we strike, everything would collapse immediately. Many weeks before the invasion, I've been talking to people inside and everybody, almost everybody, at some moment mentioned uh, the, 1999, uh, the 1999 uh, NATO bombings of Belgrade mm. as an example of what could be done. And it made some sense. I mean, you can always, first of all, you can always say, well, we did what you did back in 1999. So you can blame the West again. Second thing, you can actually, it's a good example when you can bomb the country into the change of a political regime and you had no troops on the ground, no casualties. And uh, it was relatively fast. The problem is that at some moment, this, this plan was changed and Putin decided not to spend time on airstrikes. I mean, he, his, uh, he launched the operation and immediately uh, he sent his troops to Ukraine, mm. which might be explained only by his uh, overconfidence in his troops and uh, that Ukraine would collapse immediately, literally immediately, not in terms of days, but in terms of hours. So it's interesting that you bring up uh, Serbia because I think it's, it's a war that most Americans probably don't even remember, uh, frankly. And it was, you could qualify it as a success, but how much does that resonate with, uh, 
with the thinking now in, in Russian leadership, the idea of this, this expansion of NATO. And... It is probably the thing which even more important than Iraq, to be honest. Putin personally has been obsessed with, uh, with the Belgrade uh, bombing. Uh. And uh, it's the same for the Russian military and the security services because it's extremely emotional. It's about Serbia being first under attack of the Germans, and uh, decades later you have NATO again bombing Belgrade, and uh, it's all about the Slavic Brotherhood and this connection between two countries starting many, many decades before, even before this, uh, the First uh, World War. So you always have had this emotional... Uh, connection with Serbia. And uh, remember that it was 1999, just a year after a huge economic crisis hit Russia. And it was a time when lots of people, including the middle classes, got really angry. Uh, they blamed the West for everything, for the, for the failure of the economic reforms. They felt betrayed. And in a year, they got a proof they got this war started by NATO. So if you want to channel your, uh, your anger, that's where they, they found a way how to channel their anger. And um, remember a famous uh, thing which Primakov back when he was prime minister did when he uh, changed the course of his plane. So it was extremely emotional and it is still uh, mm. talked about a lot in Russia. And it's, as I, as I said, it's not only about emotional response to that, that it was horrible, but it, it's all, it's, um, it is also a fascination of how, how swift uh, the change was. Like you bomb the country, it's not messy, you don't lose your soldiers, and you force a political change. So that's kind of a, was a model, or at least an ideal for the, the operation yeah. the hated model i would say <laughs> they hated it but they were really fascinated by this example i used to have to negotiate with uh uh russia's government in the at the end of the clinton administration and it struck me i i know the sense of disappointment over what they expected they would get and then how that turned into anger but that was i mean that was 20 years ago isn't it isn't it getting a little old. I mean, why, why still blame the West? That's like it's us blaming the British for burning down the White House. Yes, it's quite interesting. But, you know, people still talk about Iraq. Uh, but Iraq is a big topic in Europe. And I'm now in London. And it's absolutely, it's quite interesting that almost every time I have some sort of conversation about the Americans, uh, the topic of Iraq emerges. So it's still there. But for Russia, it's not Iraq. Iraq was too far. And uh, people do not actually understand what is, I mean, ordinary Russians know very little about, about Iraq. They think about Serbia and they think about Afghanistan. These two things are really important. And um, last summer, of course, what happened in Afghanistan also had a big emotional impact on, on the Russian military. Lots of people started asking themselves a question. 
look, these Americans, they trained the, uh, the army in Afghanistan for 20 years. It collapsed in, in two days. Uh, how we can be sure that other armies trained by the same Americans, but in Eastern Europe would not collapse in the same three days? And of course, these parallels... <laughs> that is a something we see in China, something that we see certainly in parts of Russia, this perception of U.S. decline and this perception of Western decline. How much of that is behind this? I mean, you could make a case in Iraq and Afghanistan were, were definitely not successes in any ways. Uh, we had the storming of the capital. How much does perception of decline uh, factor into this and maybe split it between those who govern and their perception and the general public and their perception. There's, there's been a decline, no doubt, but there's an assumption yes. that we won't recover. Well, the elites, yes, they believe in this idea of, uh, of the American decline, and uh, they've been playing with this idea for many years, probably starting with Trump, maybe even before him. Uh, for the general public, it's a bit more emotional, and there is always a feeling that the U.S. still is capable of some subversive activities in, in Russia or in the former Soviet Union, and uh, it fills this sense of paranoia. Like, if you have any kind of protest in, it, in any country, well, the Americans should be behind it. So they still believe in the idea of the U.S. State Department, it's a, it's a big, big idea. Like every protest movement, any protest, every protest rally should have something to do with uh, the U.S. State Department. Let's come back to the State Department. But one thing you just you triggered, so you're in London. And sometimes when you see Russian sources, they say the U.S. and the U.K. Why the obsession with the U.K.? Are they still watching Riley Ace of Spies or something? I mean, what? It is something to do with the great game. They believe in this idea that the British had a special role in, specifically in the Middle East and, and, and the North Caucasus. Uh, and uh, they're really good at conducting intelligence operations. Uh, they are much better than the Americans and all that. So they believe it's, it's kind of an obsession with... Uh, they're quite... They, they love Britain, and lots of Russian oligarchs, actually. They, they try to imitate British accent sometimes. They love London. So it's a, it's a hate-love relationship. Extremely emotional, but yeah. it's still there. On, on a related note, the idea that NATO is somehow this uh, aggressive organization, when you talk to NATO... The, the first thing, they won't even say the word offensive cyber operations, for example. The most they'll say is active defense. So why the, why the concern about NATO? Also, if you've ever been to NATO, uh, I wouldn't particularly fear uh, a NATO invasion. Putting aside that it's insane. It would be hard for NATO. NATO would not, especially after Afghanistan and Iraq, it would be hard to rally them for another adventure. Why are the Russians afraid of NATO? Well, Putin was really smart at playing with historical memories. And also, it's something about the way we are taught history in our schools. Even in my school, I was told 
that the Russian Empire was uh, the only empire which was built by peaceful means because everybody wanted to join in. And that the only wars we ever had were always to defend our country, never to expand. And actually, this idea sits really deep with, with the Russian psyche. We're always like waiting for someone to attack us, starting with Mongols or Napoleon or the Germans. And uh, it always strikes something emotional inside because we have this big ideology about the Second World War again. And actually, it, to some extent, it's a real Russian ideology. And I think what sometimes people do not understand that the Soviet Union played with communism only for probably 20, 25 years. After the Second World War, the real ideology was not communism, but the idea of the Great Patriotic War. But we were attacked by the West uh, and we saved the world. That makes us great. And you have all these emotional things which uh, help you to think really good about yourself and about your country. In the 60s, nobody believed in communism, but everybody believed in the idea of a great sacrifice we made to save the world and how as the rest of the world is not sufficiently grateful to us. Putin always exploded this idea and it still strikes nerve. I mean, lots of people still talk about it. It's part of, or maybe it is the real Russian ideology. Mm. Yeah, the, I've seen the things that suggest the Mongols still have some sort of psychological effect. And no one could blame. But my lesson from, I think the lesson most Americans would have is look at Napoleon, look at Hitler. It's a bad idea to invade Russia. But that doesn't seem to have gotten, you know, we talk about General Winter and General Mud, and it's like, ah, we're not going there, you know. So that's puzzling, but understandable. How much of the effort of the security services is being eaten up by Ukraine? Do they have time to? So the French have been asking me, for example, or French journalists, will the Russians be able to interfere in our presidential election? And I said, probably. Is, is this an all-absorbing task for them, the way, say, Iraq and Afghanistan was for the American services? Well, it's a good question, because uh, as far as we know right now, and we have like three weeks of, of the war, we didn't see a large cyber-operation conducted by the Russians. To be honest, I do not quite understand why. It makes every sense to start doing something, especially the first day, second day, to spread panic. Uh, and if you cut off communications, you can force more people to leave and it would add to confusion. And you can like create a really big problem for uh, transporting troops if you can fill the, the roads with, uh, with panic population. Then again, you can do that by using cyber. For reasons I do not know, that was never uh, activated by the Kremlin. But it means that these capabilities are still there and they could be activated for another target. So I cannot rule out it completely. Do you think it was because uh, the explanation over here is that uh, because we went through this in Iraq, 
we're going to own the store in a couple weeks. So there's no sense in us blowing it up. And the other part is, that's largely the explanation is if you think you're going to have a quick win, you won't destroy critical infrastructure. So it is a little baffling. Yes, that is true. Uh, and it's sort of, it coincides with another thing, which I do not understand either, is you have this initial plan that everything should collapse in like two hours. It never happened. You face a real big problem. Everybody understands second day that uh, actually you face a fierce resistance from the Ukrainians. We have some, we have a lot of logistical and uh, help from, uh, from the West. You need to adjust your tactics accordingly. And for almost three weeks, it never happened. I mean, they kept sending these columns of tanks and the National Guard uh, with no protection into Ukraine. Uh, they got ambushed and killed and burned. And the Russian army, well, just keep going. I don't quite understand why. It looks like the political element in the military planning was so important and so crucial that the military, they didn't have a say. Or maybe it's something about, about Putin personally, why he decided not to let his military commanders to change the tactics on the battlefield. Mm. And again, that might be an explanation why cyber was never activated. Because they still, they had this initial plan going and they stick to this plan. And only very recently, like three days ago, they started sort of changing the tactics, but not really. I mean, they just decided to use more artillery, uh, more art strikes, but it's basically the same plan. So one of the questions that came up repeatedly here in the first few days was, uh, when can we expect a massive Russian cyber attack against the U.S.? And I kept saying, don't hold your breath. What do you think the odds are of some kind of cyber action? Political coercion, I get. And so political interference, misinformation, election interference, I, that has to be tempting. But the kind of attack on critical infrastructure that people worried about, I think it's improbable. I, I wonder what you think. Not that you, and you can say it's probable if you want. But what would Russia get? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it looks like Putin still believes that he is in control. And uh, from his point of view, he is acting rationally, which means that he still has some steps in this letter, uh, in this letter of escalation before uh, using something really, really bad. And he wanted to send a message. He attacked this uh, training facility close to Lviv. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, for me, it was it's horrible to say, but it was some sort of relief because I thought his way of escalation would be to attack something in Romania or to target an attack in NATO warship in, in the Black Sea. Well, it looks like he still has some, some steps before doing this which is good to some extent in this horrible uh, situation. So I do not think that he is ready for a large escalation. And uh, of course, a big cyber attack on the US would imply that it's actually, it's, it's really huge. Mm. So I don't know if you saw, but if, if, you, uh, if you read TASS, which I usually don't, 
there was an offer from the Russians to resume talks on uh, cybersecurity. Yeah, uh, made, yeah. yeah, I saw that. Why do you think they did that? I, I, I assume somewhat cynically that it's not a serious offer, but why, why do you think they did it? Well, to be honest, I think it's, it was quite serious. Really? Uh, what, yeah, because uh, it's, it's something to do not with, uh, with Putin, but with the FSB. FSB actually uh, played really smart last year, mm. and they put themselves in a position to be a reliable or semi-reliable partner for the U.S. in cyber. We conducted several arrests in Russia. We actually they stopped at least temporarily uh, ransomware attacks. They tried to play to play nice. Speaking from the perspective of Moscow, it made some sense because uh, the foreign ministry uh, position was in decline. Everybody understood what Lavrov got really emotional, tired. He wanted to resign many years ago. Well, foreign minister, the foreign minister doesn't have any say about Ukraine about many sensitive things. So if you have, say, the Americans wanted to talk to somebody in Moscow, well, it's either the FSB or the Security Council, which basically is the same. And the FSB wanted to place themselves in this, in, well, uh, in this game. And they, they did that quite successfully. Sarah Molotov, who is the Deputy Minister of, foreign, uh, of the Foreign Ministry, mm-hmm. he's an FSB general. <laughs> we all remember that. He also was in charge of, uh, of the Sochi Olympic Games in mm. 2014. And back then, he developed some good contacts with the Americans. And he understands, well, at least if that was his idea before the war, that these contacts might be actually good to play with Putin. Because at some moment, Putin would need someone who the Americans would trust. Uh, to talk. And the FSB is actually is, uh, maybe in the best position right now, mm. surprisingly, because still the Americans need to talk to the FSB about counterterrorism and all of that. Uh, and they are better than the military. So I think it was maybe the inertia or maybe some sort of wishful thinking that the war would finish in like maybe a few days. And after that, the Americans would need some partner, some mm. contact point in Moscow. So why not to play the FSB in this position? So just a couple more questions. What advice would you then give to the U.S.? My advice was not to take the offer too seriously, but uh, to wait, at least wait until things sorted themselves out in the Ukraine. And that could be a while. So what advice would you give if you were advising the, the administration? Well, I, th- I, th- I think actually I would... Uh sort of, uh, I would support your advice. Uh, what you also need to understand that now there is a feeling of a sense of paranoia in Moscow. Mm. Look, because the US intelligence was so good. And that means that probably the US intelligence had some human sources. We already had some projects inside of the foreign intelligence branch of the FSB. And uh, the interesting thing about this, this branch of the FSB, that this uh, so-called thief service is also responsible for maintaining official contacts with, uh, with the Americans, including the CIA. So if you have some people in Moscow 
asking themselves this question, how it's come that the US intelligence was so good, you need to start looking for leaks. And it's quite natural for them to start looking in a place and in the department, which officially had some contact with the Americans. So the FSB is now is under huge scrutiny by people who, who are quite paranoid. So I would wait for some time, well, for many reasons, including what you say, but also because of his paranoia. Last week on this podcast, we had a senator, Senator Warner of Virginia, and he said that one of the things that the U.S. had done well and was worth thinking about in the future is we're usually bad at disinformation. I mean, we used to rely on Hollywood. And he said that the, releasing more intelligence on Russian intentions, plans, capabilities was a useful counter to disinformation. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, well, it was... Well, I know all, many of my friends and journalists and uh, European journalists and Russian journalists who were extremely skeptical because there was still these um, memories of, uh, of the Iraq disaster. And uh, I had many conversations with uh, European diplomats and all of them, not all of them, but many of them, they told me, no, 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 of course, it was not for sure, uh, for, for real. The Americans are playing with these games. Uh, it's, it's a hysterical reaction. They actually, they are provoking the Russians to do something stupid. All of a sudden, now, it's completely changed. Well, I do not know whether you can sort of, whether it would stand. Mm. Uh, maybe it would be limited to Ukraine. I mean, there is a big sense of anti-Americanism in Europe, obviously. Mm. And uh, I just do not know if you get another crisis, uh, what might be the reaction from, from Europe. But at least for now, the reputation of the US intelligence is really high. And uh, so some of the trust is back, uh, which is really, I mean, which is really something. I mean, it's, it's changing the game, but I would not make any predictions for the future. Well, I'm going to ask you then to make a prediction for the future. What, what do you think the end game is uh, between now and the end of the year? Well, I'm a Russian citizen and it's absolutely, I'm absolutely disgusted by what Putin's doing. And uh, my biggest problem, and it's absolutely tragic, that the history tell, t- tells us that the usual way for Putin to get out of a hole is to escalate, unfortunately. What's his way of thinking? And now we all are put in a horrible position to guess where he will escalate. In Romania, in Moldova, in the Baltics, in Black Sea, what he's going to do with his nuclear threat. All of his options are just horrible. The problem is that I do not see any way out for him from this hole. I mean, even with, if he would say would secure some sort of agreement with with Zelensky, it would be a, a big loss for him. He would get nothing out of it. I mean, okay, well, you get demilitarization of Ukraine, whatever it is. I mean, the companies would not get back to Russia. The sanctions would be there. Trust is destroyed. 
people left the country. I mean, we have big Russian tech companies like Yandex losing thousands and thousands of employees every day, basically. I mean, the future of the country is destroyed. That's for sure. I don't know for how long, but probably for two generations. Uh, and that I can say with confidence because these engineers, they are not only living in the country, they are taking to them their kids because mm. of the fear that their kids could be sent to, to the army mm -hmm. and sent to Ukraine. So you are losing not only, say, people in their 40s and 30s, you are losing people in their 70s, uh, 70s and, and 80s. Uh, I mean, because, we, because of this big fear that you can be sent to, to Ukraine to fight and they do not want to. So I don't quite understand his endgame. Yeah, I think the outflow of talent and energy is probably the biggest damage, but that's been going on for a long time. Uh, it's, it's now it's much more dramatic. Really? It's just absolutely unprecedented. Look, Yandex alone lost 6,000 people. Wow. Hard to see. So I saw a billboard. It was in Russia and had uh, Putin's face on it. It says, Russia doesn't start wars, it ends them. Which is a, a nice statement, but I'm, I'm not, we, we aren't coming up to any good conclusions here for an end. Uh, any, anything that we missed? Any final words you want to add to the podcast? Now, I wish to have some, some, some understanding of how it could end. I just, I, I just don't. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. I don't know. <laughs>